One Hope Church. class. Um, if you do need the restroom this morning, please enter in uh, through the main lobby and use the bathroom that's in um, the second lobby as you enter into the building um, to the right. And so uh, we're trying to keep the door shut on the other side because it's a little bit chilly in Athens, Georgia uh, this morning. But again, another amazing gift that's another Sunday um, that we are not rained out. We are not weathered out. Um, just time and time again, we get to continue um, to meet. And we've been doing this since April. It really is incredible. Um, this morning, um, we're going to talk a, a, a bit about the justice of God. And it's a difficult passage. Admittedly, we're back in Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. And uh, we'll get most of the way through chapter 19 this morning. Um, but, you know, again, I, I want to go back to a principle in our, in our church um, that we generally teach through books of the Bible. Last couple of weeks, we've called some audibles um, with different situations that, you know, has been felt necessary. But for the most part, um, we teach straight through books of the Bible. And one of the great advantages of doing that is that we are forced to confront difficult things, difficult issues, and that we don't get to just skip over hard stuff and say, well, we're not going to talk about that here. And this is a major issue in the church today. Even in Bible teaching churches, Difficult things are often skipped over. Most, I mean, regularly skipped over. And it's like, we're not going to talk about that because we don't want to offend anyone or potentially lose anyone. Well, look, I, I, I'm going to be very upfront here. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to lose anyone. But at what price... Do we just avoid large portions of the Bible? I would say that's a tremendous price. Um, and that we have to be faithful to teach the whole counsel of God and the whole word of God regardless of the consequences. And the, the reason that the church, as we talked about last week, is in such a sad state is because largely the church has acquiesced and said we aren't going to do or talk about difficult things. We will not confront sin in any way. We will not confront sins of materialism. We will not confront an overemphasis on entertainment. We will not confront Christian nationalism. We will not confront Christian liberalism. We will just let it all slide. just say God loves you and we'll move on and that's largely why the church is in such a pathetic dead state in the United States of America 
So I have a responsibility to preach the word. Anybody who's preaching the word has a responsibility to preach the word. The hearers have a responsibility before God to do what they, to listen to the word and to respond according to the word and not according to prevailing culture. And the thing about it is the culture is always changing. But God and his word, they stay the same. The scripture also tells us, choose this day whom God, you know, which which God you will serve. And as we've said last week, if Jesus is who he says he is, follow Jesus. And if he's not, do what you want. Do what you will. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll begin in Genesis 18, verse 16. Come and Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, in many ways I, I come to you um, heavy-hearted. Heavy-hearted at the state of our world, but even a heavier heart. For the state of what is called the church. Lord, may we have the courage to agree with you. May you help us in our pursuit of truth to be also an equal pursuit of love and grace and mercy and compassion. As we are in truth and holiness and justice. Help us, Lord Jesus to fully follow you because you are the one who died on the cross for our sins and who rose from the dead. And so it's in your precious name, dear Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So in the first half of Genesis chapter 18, if you remember, the Lord appears to Abraham in bodily form and two others with him also in bodily form and these are angels but having the appearance of men and this is where the promise is given about um, Abraham you know will have a son through Sarah named Isaac the promise child then verse 16 it says the, the men then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to send them on the way and the Lord said shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him in reminder of that repeated promise that God says that through You know, the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth, or all the families of the earth, we will be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now, so so basically the Lord is saying, I'm going to tell Abraham this, but here's why I'm telling him this. That he may command his children. 
and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. See, there's a responsibility that the Lord's going to give to Abraham and then Abraham has to pass on to his household and to his sons. Why? So they'll pass it on to the next generation. And whenever we have a break in that, chaos and destruction are sure to follow. Verse 20, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the Lord obviously knows, but he's, the Lord's putting this in in terms for, for Abraham Hey, I'm going to go personally, we're going to go personally here and inspect this situation. And the men turned away in verse 22 from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Now this is an amazing portion of scripture. Because here, Abraham knows who he's talking to. This is bold for Abraham to say to the Lord, you know, Lord, would you do this? Would you destroy the wicked with the righteous? Far be it from you. And so Abraham, in his grace and compassion, remember he's already had some experience with his people. He knows one thing he has for certain, remember, is that his nephew Lot lives there. His nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And Lot's family. And he's also rescued people from there. So he has had, you know, a personal knowledge of personal interactions with these folks. And so he wants to see a different outcome. He wants to see them spared, but particularly the ones who are, are righteous. He wants to see the righteous spared. He wants to make sure that God is going to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked and, and that the righteous would not be destroyed. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, Verse 26, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Now Abraham goes into negotiation mode. And Abraham answered and said, indeed, now I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, if I find there are 45, I will not destroy you. Now, remember, Abraham, while he's bold to speak to God, he is also humble. I am, I who am but dust. Humble. He's not saying, hey, I'm on equal footing here. No, he's humble. He says, I am lowly. I am but dust. 
verse 29, and so he spoke to him yet again. That's Abraham speaking to the Lord and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And he, so he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then Lord, then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Abraham, pretty good negotiator. <laughs> you know, usually if you feel good at the negotiation, if, if one person started at one place, the other person started the other, and you met halfway, you know, you consider that a pretty good negotiation, right? But to go from 50 to 10, I mean, it looks like Abraham did a great job in this negotiation. 10, and you know, Abraham probably had some confidence here because he's like, well, there's my nephew. There's my nephew Lot, and there's his wife, and children and you know there's family so you know he's thinking well I've got over half I'm over halfway there on the 10 I mean there's got to be a few more people that are righteous there right I mean we're going to be it's going to be okay we go to chapter 19 Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. Let's stop there just for a second because there's something important kind of here in this scene that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So what we find is you read the Old Testament, you'll find oftentimes people sitting in the gate and those who are sitting on the gate are usually have a role um, towards uh, being a mediator between people in disputes or certifying financial transactions. This is what was agreed upon and, and I bear witness or testimony that this is the case. And, you know, Lot, not being from Sodom, was probably um, you know, able to take that, that role because people would think, well, he'll be fair about it. You know, we, we know he's different than we are in, in how he lives his life. He's different. And He's not one of us, so you know we can we can get a he'll he'll decide. He's the unbiased one, but you know between us, he'll decide what is what is fair. So it's likely that Lot had that role in the community, but and the scripture, this, I mean, we see Lot make mistakes, but be clear, the New Testament clearly states that. that Lot was was righteous, and he was certainly righteous, righteous relative to the community that he lived in. Though he was far from perfect, but he was markedly different. 
And he invite he sees these two come in. He he it seems like recognizes that there is something different about them. As he says to them, "My lords, please turn into your servant's house." And again, he's taking the lowly position here, and he offers this hospitality. And he and they said, "No, but we will spend the night in the open square." And here we see it's a strong indication that Lot, I mean, fully understands the society that he lives in, what the culture is like. Verse 3, but he insisted strongly. That's Lot. He Lot insisted strongly. So they turned in to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That's a, and yeah, that's a carnal knowledge. So Lot went out to, the, to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let them let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason that they have come under the shadow of my roof. Now, we'll stop for a moment here because this is an admittedly, you know, default passage and difficult. You know, section to hear. There's a, 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 I'll give you a couple of um, ideas. There's a couple of things to think about. But again, we see the the culture here was um, a sinful sexuality, but also with violence. There's a, a culture of sexual violence. Um, and, and that's a, you know, a terrible thing. And Lot, because these men have come into his home, he feels he has this, you know, he has a tremendous responsibility for their safety, for their well-being. Okay. Now, as we read, he offers his two daughters. Now. Most who read that just say, you know, this kind of, you know, Lot did the wrong thing and he shouldn't have done this. I, I, I tend to think, this is my opinion on it, that this was an, an offer to get the people to stand down. That this is not something that he actually had intention to do, but was a way to shame those who had surrounded the house that when he goes this far, they would walk away. I'll give you an illustration of that. In um, another part of the world, um, very difficult for for Christians and for those sharing the gospel, um, this, it, you know, there was there was an uprising. There were people surrounding this home, and and the believers had already left. But there was a neighbor who was the gardener, who was the friend. And he takes his own son and puts his own son, you know, at the front of the house 
and says, if you burn this house down, then you're going to burn my son. And then you'll all be guilty of having killed my son. Now, there's not an intention there that his son would actually die. But he did that to shame those who had surrounded the house with the intention to burn it down, to cause them to leave. He was putting them at shame. This is, look how egregious you are overstepping what is right. You need to go home. And that was the the loudest way he could give that message, even though there's no intention and that, you know, he would rescue his son if they actually went to burn the house. They, he wouldn't just let his son be there and die. Okay, but it was a way to shame those who had come there to do that, that evil deed. I think that's what's going on here. Lot knows they have zero interest in his daughters. They are not interested at all in his daughters. And knowing that gives him the ability to play that card of shame in hopes that they will leave the situation. I don't think that Lot actually believes his daughters are at any risk. Because Lot knows the city. And he knows what they want. That's my perspective on it. Others may have a different perspective, but I, I think that makes sense. Verse 9, and they said, stand back. Then they said, this is one who came in to stay here. He keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway at the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. So here the angelic power is revealed as these men pull Lot in and blind those who have come to the house. And verse 12, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and has sent us to destroy it. Now, let's stop for a moment. And, you know, and, uh, there's something here to, uh, to address, I think is necessary, you know, to, uh, to address. Because there, there's a debate over whether, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of homosexuality or because of violence, their violence. I would argue that it's it's the violence that is predominant here. Okay, that there's the the culture of sexual violence was particularly egregious. 
Now, the problem is many of those who take that position will try to use that to argue that homosexuality is not a sin. The problem with that position is that nothing else in Scripture supports that. Nothing in Scripture. Not nothing else. Nothing in Scripture supports that. The Scripture is, is clear to condemn all sexual sin. Any pornography. Any sexual relationship outside of marriage. Any adultery. Jesus drops the hammer on lust. There are many different ways to sin sexually. But again, just read Romans chapter 1 and you'll see from a very clear New Testament perspective that you can, you can have your opinion and say, oh, that's not wrong. The, the issue is you can't just say the Bible agrees with me. Because if you say it's not a sin, the Bible doesn't agree with you. The Bible is just very clear and consistent and it hasn't changed. And it's not going to change just based on the culture of the time. Remember, the culture that the New Testament was written in was dominated by the Roman world. And the New Testament authors, when they wrote against homosexuality, homosexuality as a sin, they put themselves in direct opposition to those who were in power. Their writings were at the threat of their own lives. To, to write that down and say, this is, this is the word of God. This is what God says about this. They did that at their own peril. So you can't say, well, it was just a cultural, you know, it was a cultural thing and now culture has changed and now it's okay. That just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Again, every person is free to say, I don't like what the Bible says about that and I don't agree with the Bible. You're okay to, I mean, you're not okay to say that, but you have, you, you have freedom to say that. It's just completely inaccurate and and wrong to say, well, the Bible agrees with my position that this is not a sin. You see, that's where you've, that, that's where the real mess up is. So when you have groups calling themselves churches and promoting that type of activity and that type of lifestyle, that goes beyond, we, we have to say, no, that's wrong. And you might say, well, 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 what do you mean when you say promoting that? What I mean is that there are many groups that call themselves churches that are saying we are looking for and we want LGBTQT leadership in our church and promoting that as you should be pursuing this cultural mindset 
And that's where we have to go, that's, that's wrong. Now, on the other side, be very careful here. Because though we believe, you know, that the scripture is still true, and what the Bible says sin is, is sin, we need to make sure that we have a loving environment where people can can come and hear the truth. Because if we said, you can't show up, or I can't have a conversation with you, if you're a sinner, then we couldn't talk to anybody. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we need to have compassion. We need to have grace and love and mercy. But we fail to have love, grace, mercy, and compassion if we do not tell the truth about what God says. Because in order to come to God, we have to humble ourselves before God and say, Lord, I'm wrong, you're right. And anything in my life that you show me is wrong, I'm willing to change because of you. You're my highest priority. But understand, when we say that to others, that those words also come back on ourselves. And our biggest issue is not, again, what's going on out everywhere else. It's what's in my own heart and what's in your own heart. What's in my mind and what's in your mind. And you're better off, and I'm better off to spend 99% of time considering our own sin. And striving to have a, a, a holy and pure life before God. Than anything else. 1% is plenty for the rest. Keep 99 sent before the Lord. Lord, examine my heart. Show me anything in my ways that do not please you. I also want to make sure that everybody understands. You see, everybody in our world draws a line somewhere. Except for like the very few, like the most, most depraved don't draw any lines, right? But most of the people that you interact with on a daily basis, they draw a line somewhere. And you know what that line that they've drawn does? It offends somebody on the other side of that line. It's just who and to what degree. Right? Everybody draws a line somewhere. You see, because... You, you, you may say it's wrong for a 30-year-old man to want to marry a 15-year-old or be with a 15-year-old girl. Other part of the culture might say, no problem with that. I mean, as long as, they're, as, long as they love each other. You see, and, and so some people are going to draw that line where? They're going to draw it at 18 and others are going to draw it at 17, 16, 15. And then there's others who will say, well, you know, I mean, 12 is good. And you see, the same people that were totally cool with like 16, 
then like throw up in their mouth at 12. Well, you see, you draw the line somewhere. Everybody does. But the issue is, do we say, okay, God, you draw the lines and just show me where they are? Or do we say, I get to draw the lines? There's another thing that we need to say here. Again, that's important in relative to this conversation. The scripture being written and Moses writes all of this, you know, it's an inspired word of God and it's profitable for us. And he is writing it in an environment where Israel is going to have a theocracy, right? So that is clearly God sets the rules and that's just how it is. And it's the human's job to follow that, right? But Israel was called out specifically to be in a theocracy. We in the United States of America and nations today, we are we are not a theocracy. You know, we have human governments, and those human governments set things, and we need to be careful. Look, we're not trying to legislate all of our morality on the world. However, we also all agree that there's a certain amount that needs to be legislated. And so we normally talk about that in in the use of the word, you know, consent and the ability to have consent, right? Because I don't think it's a good idea for for the church to try to make it illegal and have, you know, prison penalties for what consenting adults do. I don't think that's a good idea. Again, we are not a theocracy. And I don't think that, I think that's, that actually causes more trouble and harm than it solves. However, when it comes to children, we draw lines. I'm trying to speak, it's hard to Trying to speak in general terms because, you know, our audience, I don't want to, I want to be careful here, but we draw a line. You know, an adult looking at adult pornography, I'm going to say, look, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that actually brings happiness and joy to your life. I think it actually brings misery. Okay. And it's not good for you. I'm not going to try to legislate that though. However, an adult looking at underage child thinks, okay, well, you see, now we're going to fight. Because you've endangered somebody who's not capable of consent. And, and, and you've and, and you've crossed a line of wickedness that we can't tolerate as a society. Do we understand that? We do, we do, we do draw some lines because what I'm because we have the, we have this the scripture here in the scripture. You know we have to interpret the scripture properly, and then we have to make applications to our cultural context, to our world that are true 
and consistent with what the scripture has given us. So we have these issues today because again, when you have, you're talking about the, the, you know, really these are, these are big cultural issues that we're facing. When it comes to homosexuality, when it comes to transgenderism, and again, if I'm speaking to an individual adult about these things, I have great sympathy because there's probably some things that happened in life that caused a person to get to where they are today. So while we need to speak the truth in love, we need to have love and compassion and mercy in that situation. However, this agenda, when people are taking children that are two parents are taken and they're doing this not because they came up with it and thought it was some great idea. They're doing this because of the cultural trends and to be on the front end and to be popular and cool and to be celebrated and all these things. But when people take their six month old baby or newborn baby and say, my baby is gay. That's a problem. You know, when people take their, their nine and ten year olds and start giving them hormones, that's a problem. That's not good. That's not good. And when you have a culture that is promoting these things and these things become trendy, and folks, I have to say, because it's in, I mean, they didn't have the ability back in this these days that the scripture was written to do some of the things that are done today. They didn't have the technology. They didn't have the medical abilities to, to do this, to do what they're doing today. If they had the ability to do it back in the times of the Romans and the times of Sodom and Gomorrah, certainly they would have. Of course they would have. But again, when, these, when this is being pushed and you see the cultural trend and when you look at the statistics and you say, our young people, our high school girls are being pressured and encouraged and pressured toward transgen- to being transgender, to take those steps, that's a, that's a problem. When we see our middle school students and our elementary school students being given literature to read that promotes those things. It's a problem. And and we have to stand up and say what is right and what is wrong. And and right now we have that that um, in terms of the marketplace of ideas we're in the, in the losing position currently. And we have acquiesced so much. And again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. An adult making a decision, I, again, I don't think it's a great decision 
I think it hurts them in the long run. And but but here's what's interesting. The loudest in our current culture, the people ringing the alarm bells the loudest are those who have gone through and have transitioned as adults. They're the one ringing the alarm bell saying, don't do this to children. They need to wait till they're adults and make an adult decision. They're actually ringing the alarm bells. But the world isn't listening. Because cultural trends are very powerful. Momentum is very powerful. And we need to make sure that we believe what we believe because of what the Bible has said and not because of what our culture has said. That's probably the biggest issue. There's other issues here. Now, we're going to move forward here. Again, if you have questions about any of these things, if, if, when I say ringing the alarm bells, we can share the articles with you about who's ringing the alarm bells on these things. You want to see the statistics? Share the statistics with you. They are alarming. They're alarming. And again, for consider this. For a child born in this country today, it's at least as likely that they will say at some point in their life and go through a transgender deal as a teenager than they will have a biblical worldview. That those right now are basically at equal odds. Those are at equal odds, statistically. Verse 12, back in the passage. Chapter 19. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. Now, just a real quick note there. We saw that Lot had two daughters in the house. There's a question. Um, one of There's one of two things. Either he has more daughters and two were married, or that these two are that were in the house are betrothed, you know, in a, you know, contractual agreement, you know, to be married, but have not um, actually, you know, had the wedding ceremony and everything else um, yet. Both of those are are possibilities. But in either case, the lot is told, get everybody you can of your family out of here. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, verse 14, who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place. The Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, 
the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See, now this city is near enough to flee to, and is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I favored you concerning this thing. Also, I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So if he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground... But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the lamb, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. So there we have it. There's more to talk about, about Lot and his unwillingness to go to the mountains. We probably should have gone. But the Lord had grace and mercy on him. And then wife's Lot Sorry, Lot's wife looks back. She becomes a pillar of salt. Keep that in mind. Now, here's the thing, folks. Here's the real part that we have to pay attention to and listen to this morning. See, Jesus is going to talk about this. See, Jesus talks about these things, but I want you to notice how he talks about it because he talks about it in relation to the places in Israel where he had done his miracles and where he had taught people and where people did not repent and turn to follow him. Notice what he says. Matthew 11 verse 20 through 24. Then he, then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you Chorazin. Woe to you Bethsaida. The mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, right there by the Sea of Galilee, who are, are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable in the, for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Folks, that's powerful. There's a couple things to, to mention here. One is, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, one of those Old Testament stories. And people are like, whew, I'm glad we're in the New Testament. 
You know, I'm, I'm glad we're in the New Testament, we're under grace, and we have Jesus and everything right. Oh, wait. What did Jesus just say? See, people skip over a lot of stuff that Jesus said, too. In fact, I would argue with you that most people who say, yeah, I like Jesus, have completely ignored like 95% of what Jesus actually said. Because anybody gave a hard word, like ever, it's Jesus. Like he gives the hardest words to everybody. And people don't give him a pass because of the hard words that he said. People give Jesus a pass because they don't know that he said them. If people actually paid attention to what Jesus said, when people actually pay attention to what he said, they don't give him a pass. They either repent and believe in him or they reject him utterly. If you actually pay attention to what Jesus said. Because you see, all these cities that he talked about, you got Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. And they're like, we're good. We're holy and righteous. And if you would ask them, like, is this place anything like Sodom and Gomorrah that you read about in in Genesis? Like, what, what are you talking about? No, we're the good guys. We're good people. You know, the Romans, you know, Rome might be like Sodom and Gomorrah, but Capernaum? Are you kidding me? Like, we're the, we are good, moral, upright people. The problem is that those good, moral, upright people didn't repent and follow Jesus. But they said, we're righteous enough on our own because we're not like those bad people and we're not like those people in the culture who do all those wicked things. We're not like those adulterers and thieves and murderers. We're not like that. We're, we're good. We're morally upright. And you know what? Here's the thing. By the world standards, everyone would give those folks the, the button or the pin or the award that says, you're a good dude. You're a good lady. And yet Jesus says it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon and for Sodom than it will be for Capernaum. That's like, whoa, hold on a second. Notice this last one, Luke 17, 28 through 30. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. See, Jesus, again, Jesus is saying what happened there in Genesis, what Moses told you about, like that was true, actually happened. So you can't say, well, I'm going to believe in Jesus and just say, well, that was just some moral story that was given. Just a cultural thing. Cultural story. No, Jesus said it, it really happened. And he says, even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He said, what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah? Like when, he's like, when, when I'm a revealed, what do you, you think is going to happen? In that day, he was on the housetop, and his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. 
Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. See, here's a problem that Lot's wife had. She loved the world and what was in it. That's why she had to look back. See, because she's looking back with sorrow about all that she had lost, that she had valued and treasured. See, Lot's wife, the real issue is that she loved the things of this world more than she loved God. She would rather have the things of this world than to have God. She liked her position, her wealth, her position in society. She'd rather have all that than to have Jesus. Well, you know, Yahweh. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And the life that the world and this love of the world and the things of the world. And so he's basically saying you need to lose that. So you can preserve preserve what's real and true and good and preserve your life. See, this is the real issue. Again, there's a real issue that what God has said is true and Jesus affirms it as true. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we better be real careful before we say, Jesus, you're wrong about all these things. We also need to be real careful for those who think that they're holy and good and righteous. Like Capernaum. That we don't get to be in the presence of God because we've been, quote unquote, good by the world standards. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Actually, my friend, another part of the world, had sent a message this morning and he said, you know, his, he's had some conversations with his barber and his barber says, you know, you're a better person than, than I am. You know, you're more moral and, and upright and, you know, you're, like you're a great example sort of thing. And my friend said, you know, his prayer is, may he, may he learn to see me as a sinner saved by grace. Not as somebody who's going to be accepted by God because oh, I'm a good person. We're accepted by God because of what Jesus has done for us at the cross where he paid our debt. So again, before we do anything else, we have to, again, say, Lord, examine my heart. And Lord, don't let me fall in love with the things of this world.
what would you be willing to give up for the name of Jesus? I'm going to close it with with this because you see, I tried to give this message this morning as, as lovingly as I can because the scripture tells us to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Jesus commanded us, you know, to love those, you know, who are enemies, those, not that we've made them our enemies, but they've made us enemies, that those who persecute you and spitefully use you, you know, that you, you would pray for them, that you would do good to them, that you would love your enemies. For God sends his son on the evil and on the good. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. You see, there's that common grace and there's a time, you know, and God is going to judge. I don't have, we don't have to judge in terms of the world. We judge in the church. That's our realm. But in the world, we don't have to judge. God's going to take care of that. Our job is to present the truth and opportunity. The gospel, whatever your sin is, lay it down. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Be saved and be a new creation and and walk in the newness of life that God gives. Whatever your sin is. But the question, you know, one question I'd ask myself this morning, you know, is like, you know, would would I preach this message in Canada? You see, I, I, I could suffer some penalties for giving this message in Canada. Will I be willing to preach this five years from now in this country if there's penalties for what is considered hate speech? Well, I've done done it. And it's online. So, you know, it's out there. It is what it is what it is in in that regard but the issue folks is we have to love Jesus enough in our world enough it may cost at some point and I would actually say that's another reason that the church in the United States of America is in such a sad state today it's also, you know, because of a, a lack of persecution. See, a lack of persecution causes people to lose focus. You know, I, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not like, oh, bring on persecution, yay, yay. I want that. I don't want that. I don't want that for myself, my family, my kids. I don't want that for any of you. But I'd rather have that for the, than the church in the United States of America to be dead. If those are the options, if those are the options, you're either going to have a lot of persecution or you're going to have a small church in the United States of America that's alive and vibrant people like just love God or laying their lives down for God or you can be as comfortable and as dead as you want to be and huge just massive massive numbers of people huge all the worldly trappings of success 
and bring it on. You know, like, if those are our options, which it might be it, it's like, historically, it kind of looks that way. And let it be. Remember the words of Jesus. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus told us to be in the world, but not of the world. There needs to be a marked difference. And we shouldn't be just trying to hide that difference. And in all things, we should be known as the people who are loving, kind, compassionate, that even when we disagree, we do so in the right ways. That when we disagree, our first thing is still love. Love, truth, grace, mercy, justice, all together. But to that, there would be no question. May God work in our hearts and in our minds and change us as needed. But come what may, may we be faithful to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your word. And your word is truth. We thank you for all of your word, Lord. Even the parts that are hard for us. Things that make us uncomfortable. Things that are difficult. Lord, help us to avoid the temptation to explain away your word. us to humble ourselves before you, God. And God, most of all, before we are looking at the sin out there, that we're asking you to look at the sin within us. That you would purify us. So that we would be your church and that we would be holy. you have asked us to show that we love you by keeping your commandments. As your word has instructed us to walk worthy of the calling which we were called. Lord, if we're honest, the biggest problem for the church is not the world's sin. sin and those of us who call you Jesus our Savior and King. May we all be humble before you. Please work in us, we pray. As we take the bread and the cup, renew us and strengthen us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we can't do anything apart from you. We can't do anything that pleases you apart from you. 
So help us, Lord Jesus, your power, your precious name. Amen.